What is up, everybody, and welcome to the All-NBA Show, part of the All-City Podcast Network. I'm your host, Adam Marez, and I am rejoined once again by my esteemed colleague, Tim Legler. Legs, it was a football weekend, but who heads? No, there were some basketball games as well. How was your weekend? Yeah, my weekend was great, man. Got a little bit of both. You know, it's it's a dream weekend for me because you know how much I love the NFL. So I had NFL playoffs, I had great NBA games to talk about. Big One of the best games I've seen all year, uh, Friday night, Boston-Denver, ready to get into really crazy finishes last night um out west <laughs> so we're gonna get, i can't wait to get into those too so uh, and so it was a dream weekend for me man a lot of a yeah. lot of high level sports and your commanders and my broncos undefeated on the weekend man no losses um so we had that going for us we are presented as always by DraftKings fantasy sports check out what the DraftKings have to offer this season with code all nba because life's more fun when you're in on the action DraftKings, the crown is yours if you have a gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER Agent eligibility restrictions apply. Void were prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. Today, we are going to be talking about Suns Pacers to start off. The Clippers had an enormous comeback uh, against the Nets, or maybe I'll say the Nets had an enormous collapse against the Clippers. We'll find out what Legs thinks. And then, of course, that game you mentioned, Nuggets Celtics, a potential finals preview that was so good, we have to rewind the clock three days to talk about it. And then we'll end the show by talking about who needs home court advantage, the Timberwolves, Oklahoma City just went into Minnesota and got a win. We'll talk about that in the final segment. But first, our top game today, the Suns beat the Pacers. No Tyrese Halliburton in this game, but there was Pascal Siakam playing his second game with the Pacers. And the Suns entered on a four-game winning streak. They exited on a five-game winning streak because Kevin Durant went off. What did you see in this game, Legs? Well, it, first of all, I want to give the Pacers all the credit in the world. You're playing without Halliburton. Um, you fall down double digits. And in the second half, the fourth quarter, you know, you wonder how are they going to be able to generate offense? This is one of the, you know, the best paced offenses in the league, highest scoring team in the league, but they don't have Halliburton. So you're like against a team like Phoenix that you know is going to continue yeah. to, to be scoring on the other end. How are you going to do it? And yet somehow they found a way to do exactly that and actually took the lead with a little over three minutes to go on a Buddy Hill transition three. They take the lead. Yeah. Phoenix calls timeout, and then the, the very next possession out of that timeout, to me, kind of summed up how good Phoenix was offensively down the stretch. Best possession of the game. Multiple driving kicks. They had a back cut that got everybody moving. The ball hopped around the perimeter. You end up with Kevin Durant on the left wing, wide open for a catch-and-shoot three to immediately give Phoenix a two-point lead after they had relinquished the lead on the other end. And to me, that was the biggest trip of the game. And then there was a little bit of back and forth that was still kind of dicey for Phoenix. Uh, but I just thought it was one of those nights when you're watching the Suns and you you watch Durant play the way that he did. He was unbelievable pretty much the entire game. To had stretches where it was all him. They just compete, yeah. continued to run their offense to him. But then, you know, late, you had moments where it was Bradley Beal. You know, he's isolating at yep. the top of the key and getting opportunities to, to two different occasions, really important possessions. Yep. He goes right, goes left, beats his guy off the dribble, gets into the lane for little floaters. Grayson Allen had some big moments, and, and, and it wasn't off catching shoots. It was off of doing stuff off the dribble where he contributed yep. down the stretch. Booker kind of had a rough time um, in the fourth quarter, but you see how good they are collectively, offensively, individually. And and when they when they get into this rhythm where they ha they can ride certain guys for stretches in the game, Adam, it, that's when you look at this team and say, you know, who has enough personnel and enough scheme to guard everything that they throw at you? Because they can beat you from deep, they can beat you off the bounce, and then most importantly, with the mid range, which was where I thought the real difference between the two teams is the number yeah. of mid range guys Phoenix has at a high level, right? That that's and and Indiana is more going to be guys that are going to get slashes or transition stuff, or they're going to get threes. And with Phoenix, you have that final weapon. Late in the clock, clock running down, give it to a guy of a Booker Beal or, or Durant caliber and let him just get to a spot on the floor, elevate, and make shots. And, and that, to me, was the difference between the two teams late. Um, and I just thought that that possession kind of summed up the night for Phoenix. After Heald hits the three, timeout, you come out of that, and I think you might have your best possession of the game that leads to a Kevin Durant wide open three to immediately reestablish the lead that they held on to. In all of those possessions that you're talking about, I mean, the one where they got the swing pass, goes to the corner, and then gets over to KD, and he nails the three, that was a big one. But all the other ones you're talking about, Kevin Durant had 40 points in this game. 
he he was phenomenal. And yet in the clutch, they were go not going necessarily to Kevin uh, Kevin Durant. They were going at Buddy Hield, whoever it was. So it was Bradley Beal in the two possessions you're talking about. One, he gets right to the cup, gets a little floater shot. Another one, he gets an easy bucket out of. So then they're trying desperately to get healed off of the ball. And I actually thought that the Pacers did a great job of not switching the play. Trying, you know, They were trying to get a switch there. Siakam was fighting over, doing a good job of recovering. But they swing it to Grayson Allen. And to your point, this to me is the biggest thing about the Suns. Because yes, you have three great scorers. But I still think teams are going to sell out to force Grayson Allen to put the ball on the floor and to try to attack and drive. And he attacked a scrambled Buddy Hield and got to the rim two times in a row and, and got buckets out of it. To me, those were huge plays because I still think them, uh, teams are going to be able to guard them that way of saying, all right, you're big three. We're going to sell out. you got to force it to one of those other guys. What can they do? Grayson Allen came up big in that one. He did, and he's impressed me all year. And, and his, you know, his numbers don't necessarily reflect some major breakthrough, but I, I think it's the first time I've seen him in the context of more than just a three-point shooter. He he is a mm. tough competitor defensively, um, yeah. and he's physically strong. He, he knows how to keep his shoulders square to guys when they try to penetrate on him. And then he's better at putting the ball down and reading spots and win a weak side slash than you ever would have thought. And he's he's it's it's very important because then. You're, you're not just every night basically judged on whether or not your three ball went in. And, and I think that's a really important element that he brings to their team because they need him on the floor. But if he's going to be a liability in some ways, either defensively right. or he's just a one-dimensional player offensively, it makes them a lot easier to guard. And, and I think with his ability to just put it down enough, to just slash enough, it really gives them an element that they're going to need because, as you said, there's going to be – some face guarding going on with some of their perimeter players when they give the ball up. There are gaps and seams to be gotten into, and he found a couple of them in a big moment and uh, helped them deliver this win. And this one thing about the Pacers is they do have compromised offense defense. There are a handful of teams that don't, that play five two-way guys. I think the Clippers are one. I think Denver's another. You know, you go to the other conference, you're going to have Boston, you know, teams like that. So it is interesting to me because the clutch time after Katie was so transcendent for most of this game, the clutch time, the clutch time offense still came by and large mismatch hunting, looking for that weak link that was Buddy Hield, and that's why I'm so curious to see the Suns have really gotten on a little five game winning streak. Their offense, especially with the big three on the court, has been unbelievable. I think I have the number here: um, the big three a plus seventeen over this five-game winning streak, which is enormous. And I think that's like a 129 offensive rating. The defense hadn't necessarily been great. But I want to see what they look like against a team that doesn't have a defender to hide. And I think we're going to see that in the upcoming games. The other big note for me, Nurkic fouled out in 19 minutes. He had six turnovers. He did have 13 rebounds. But this was one of those matchups where it was two teams that have one center, Miles Turner, Yusef Nurkic, and then a lot of five-out options. Nurkic is there for Phoenix to be the big-bodied guy against the big-bodied Western Conference. But when you see him in a matchup of really small drive-and-kick guys, 19 minutes for six fouls and six turnovers really stood out. Yeah, definitely. It definitely did. And you know, I, I want to say also, you know, you talk about Nurkic fouling out. This, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating for me some nights when I watch games and the contrast in officiating and style yeah. of officiating. Because I thought actually Siakam – really got a bad whistle in this game. He was not allowed to really get guard Kevin Durant at all in the perimeter. And, you know, yeah. I contrasted with what I watched in the Boston-Denver game, and I was lauding the officials in that game because they just let him play 27 free throws total in the Boston-Denver game on Friday night. I thought that there was more physical contact in the post than any game I've seen all year. There was more physical contact on the perimeter, and they let guys play through it. And then I watched this game, and I felt like there were so many whistles where immediately, as soon as there's any contact, a whistle is called. And I thought it affected Siakam dramatically as well because they wanted to put him on Kevin Durant for more possessions. Right. Yep. But I felt like every time he breathed on him, he got a whistle. And then the worst you this might be the worst offensive foul called all year. You will watch. If you watched every minute of every game this year, you will not see a worse call. Then the illegal screen they called on Pascal Siakam down two, right. two minutes to go that he set on Bradley Beal. And I watched it back three times yep. because I wanted to see, was I missing something? He's perfectly squared up 
he's actually was kind of narrow shouldered. He wasn't even like wide, like extending his bows. He didn't lean in with his shoulder. He just yep. got narrow, basically protecting himself. Beal runs right into the center of his chest, and they call it they call an offensive foul. It's almost like as an official, you're watching it, anticipating that it's going to happen, and you're ready to call it no matter what. I just thought it affected Siakam's night. Look, it's really early in the process for them. I overall love the acquisition of Pascal Siakam. If if you're a Pacers fan, it, you're not gonna you're not gonna really see the true full results of this until you're 15, 20 games in. And you see yeah. all the things that he does on the court, the versatility defensively. He becomes your second best offense creator immediately. The day one he steps on the court, that's your second best shot generator. He's going to bring all those things. I didn't think he really was given a chance to show himself in this game because the whistle really affected him on this night. And I thought Nurkic also had two or three that, you know, put him in a compromised position where he really doesn't have a night in terms of minutes played because of the foul trouble. So I was just a little bit frustrated with the way the game was officiated when I watched a game like that on Friday night. And I just absolutely loved watching two teams be allowed to play and settle yeah. things. I didn't feel that was as much the case in this one. And we didn't get a lot of minutes, but we did see some of the minutes with Siakam at center. And that was the minutes you're talking about in particular yeah. at the end of the second, uh, at the end of the first half where Kevin Durant was the center on one side and you had Siakam the center at the other. And it was fun. You wanted to see it, but you're right. There was some some really tough calls. And that illegal screen one really drive me nuts because that was a big swing possession. And I just, I thought in that moment, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't particularly close, but tough break, uh, just a tough break there. The other guy for the pay, if we go to the Pacers side, what, Jairus Walker is now on my radar. That's a, not a name I had really had on my radar prior to, um, you know, he had, a, I believe, a career high the game before or two games before. And then last night he hit a, a pair of big time threes, played some good defense, had some good defensive possessions. I hadn't really seen a whole lot of him or thought a whole lot about him, but he stood out enough to me that I just kind of wanted to give him a shout out. Do you have any I'm notes on Jairus Walker? Yeah, no, I've been watching the Pacers a lot. Uh, probably... I would say almost as much as any team in the Eastern Conference. Because um, I like watching them play, and I think they're a really interesting story and in what they could be. And now that they have Siakam, I mean, they're definitely a team that I'm going to want to watch a lot. And so I've been watching Walker. And he he's he's starting to get more and more confident offensively. Like, he looked like the two threes yeah. he hit, you're talking about, yep. that he hit in the fourth quarter. Like, those are big, big-time shots, and he was so comfortable – and getting to those areas and, and, and looking for those shots. He also had nine boards in 18 minutes. He's Man. got incredibly long arms, uh, and he's very strong. Like, he's put together so he can he could do certain things on the glass in traffic that, that they're going to need. And I think that's a great, great uh, point that you bring up because when you think about the Pacers, you just wonder – is there going to be enough rebounding? Is there going to be enough athleticism defensively? Like, do they have enough – to really make things interesting if they have to play those those top teams in a playoff series. Well, now you add Siakam and you get Walker, who continues to impress me. He's 6'7". He's got the reach of you know a guy that's like seven feet. And if he continues to get more comfortable offensively, but I don't feel like you know he's, he's only playing one end of the floor, he's a great name to bring up because I think he's going to cement himself more and more in their rotation. When you're talking about Siakam, one of the things that stood out to me watching this game that Siakam brings to the table, the Pacers are a great drive and kick team, right? They spread you out and they get downhill. One thing Siakam does that I don't think anybody else on the Pacers does effectively is he could turn a drive into a post-up. So if you, you yes. get a drive going and you gain about five, six, seven feet, turn your back and now you're at that mid post spot and you can start to work from there. And that really sucks the defense in. So we didn't. We only saw the one game with Halliburton over the weekend. Is at Portland. I think that was sort of a classic first game. It, it was a little dysfunctional. They lose to Portland on the road. But I actually that was one of the things I took away is that's a whole different type of offense you can go to naturally in the flow of your rhythm that I think gives you a different look that I think the Pacers will probably figure out in the back half of the season. Yeah, they don't have a single guy on their roster that's capable of playing the way you're talking about. Not one. Because that's not really Halliburton's strength. I mean, you know, there's a lot of right. point guards in this league that will like to get somebody on their back and operate down there. Halliburton doesn't really do that. He operates pretty much the entire game from a face-up position, whether it's, you know, looking for his three off the ball screen or getting downhill where his shoulders are square to the baseline. And their wings don't do it. Their wings are guys that either slash or they catch and shoot threes. 
Siakam, and he's always – this has been a huge part of his game, you know, since he really emerged. He loves to catch the ball, come at you, sort of sort of does this stutter step thing where he's dribbling the ball with a really high dribble, and all of a sudden he just spins on you. And as hit that first step with his back to you, right, the defender starts to lean in with his forearm, he spins out of that. So he's, he's developed this incredible rhythm to that where he's anticipating your leverage coming forward and he spins back forward again and will go and he'll shoot some kind of floater up off the glass or shoot something in the lane over the front of the rim. So it's it's another dimension to their offense other than what they have now, which is a lot of transition stuff, threes, and then driving kicks. Now they have a guy that actually can operate out of the post, but it's not an isolation where you come up and throw it to him. He starts on the perimeter and then breaks you down and gets you on his back uh, going into the post. He's super comfortable operating that way. It's going to be a whole nother dimension to their offense once he gets really comfortable with the guys he's playing with. Because right now, there's this feeling out process that takes place yeah. when you change teams, right? And you don't, you, you, as, as, as great as some of these guys are, they're still self-conscious about coming in and like doing too much. And yeah. once that's gone, you'll, you'll start to see Siakam really be comfortable and look like himself. I have to give a shout out to uh, Caitlin Cooper, who's one of, if not the best X's and O's writer out there. She has her Patreon uh, basketball she wrote. She had some good stuff on Siakam's debut, and I want to highlight one of them in particular because I think it is something that is going to be a staple of their offense. The dribble pitch actions that you can get with Halliburton and Siakam. Siakam is so good to the point you were just making about him. He's so good at dribbling hard right. You grab a pitch, a dribble pitch, the team go, doesn't want to switch that one, and then he gets a little momentum because you're going under on Siakam. He gets a little momentum going downhill to his right, and now he could spin, and he's using all of his different stuff in a spread offense. I think that's going to be a staple for, for them of a way to kind of get early offense, just a quick little dribble pitch action with those two guys and get him going downhill. And she had a, a highlight of a bunch of those that we saw in the first matchup against the Portland Trailblazers. Um, which I just thought was awesome. And then my last note on this game is I was very underwhelmed in this game with Benedict Matherin. Um, yeah. And that was honestly, I think they win if you get a little bit of a better performance out of him. He had just four points on one of eight shooting. And to me, the reason he didn't score more was he didn't drive. And I don't know why. You know, there were so many opportunities with a very spread court, no big, no rim protector back there. And he kept doing this dance left, right, left, right, pull up mid-range jumper. And I kept thinking, just put your head down and go. You need that with – the Pacers need that from a player like him. They need his three-point shooting, but they need him to be able to get to the rim a little bit more than he did in this one. Yes, yeah, and it's strange. And I don't know exactly, you know, if there's a correlation between Siakam's arrival and what's happened to him the last two games. Because mm. the first 10 games of this month, he averaged 18 points a game. He was actually starting to play his best offensive basketball of his of his young career here over this stretch. Siakam comes in, and in the two games he's played with him, he's one for 16 from the field. Two points and four points. I mean, complete outliers on the type of month that he's mm. had, really on the type of season that he's had. So that's something I think to keep an eye on. You know, to what extent, and it always happens, like when you bring a new right. guy in, particularly a guy like Siakam, who's going to have a lot of usage and the areas of the floor that he occupies and whatnot, how has that affected Benedict Matherin? So I don't know yet because I'd, I'd have to go back and watch all the possessions probably and really get a feel for exactly how it might be dramatically affecting him. But it's something certainly on my radar going forward because that seems kind of strange. He's playing the best he's played to this point in his career. In the first part of this month, Siakam arrives one for 16 over two games with six points total. So there's something really strange that's going on here the last couple of games with Benedict Mather, and it's something to keep an eye on. The, let's go to the other side now because I think it's it's just as interesting. But Phoenix now on a five-game win streak. And while I thought this game wasn't necessarily the most impressive close, even though they did some really good stuff in the final two minutes and 30 seconds, the lead-up to that two minutes and 30 seconds wasn't the best. I'm very impressed with the five-game win streak at Lakers, at Portland, Sacramento at New Orleans and Indiana, four out of those five, with the exception of the at Portland game, four out of those five are very impressive wins against good teams. So what is there something that you're seeing from the Suns now with their big three kind of finding their first stretch of consistency where they're getting to play? Is there something you're seeing that they've turned a corner? It's 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 flow. It's flow, and it's also I just think there, there's a greater belief now. Their body language is better. 
Um, and, and you can just see it. They've got a bounce in the confidence now. That they, they, they have they have unstoppable um, matchups pretty much every time up the floor if they want to take advantage of it. And you can just see it in their eyes. They, they're looking at each other now that they're, the three of those guys are out there together consistently. And you, you can just see the confidence building. And we and we knew that this was going to be the case. Look, when this all came together on the offseason, and you know, I, I said this might be eventually might be an unguardable team. And there are times when they go through stretches in games when it looks that way because of, and I talk about it all the time, because of the, the incredible mid-range ability of these three players, they always have an answer, man. At any time in the possession, at any no matter what the clock says, they have an answer if it swings to one of those three guys and they've got any space, right or left, to rise up. And so you just have this incredible finish to possessions that most teams don't have, not three of those guys on one team. So that's really what it is. It's just a flow, a rhythm. I think the rotation uh, for Frank mm -hmm. Vogel, he seems a little bit more comfortable now with staggering minutes with those guys and also with how he's going to use his role players. And so it just it becomes a comfort zone. Now, look, they've got a seven-game road trip coming up. They play Chicago yes. at home um, yep. uh, to, uh, tonight, and then they got to go seven straight on the road in some tough games, Dallas, Indiana, Orlando, Miami, and then they finish up Brooklyn, Atlanta, Washington at the end of that trip. So that, that is some saving grace when you got that at the end of the trip. So if they All can right. somehow, you know, they, they can win a couple of those early ones, you got a chance to maybe go five and two on this trip. They're yeah. really going to be feeling good about themselves when they get back. But it's right now, it's just a flow thing, man. They're, they're comfortable, they're in rhythm, and they've got more offensive talent than the teams they're playing. I think they also have now six guys that are pretty consistently great. You talk about their starting lineup, and Grayson Allen rounds that out along with Yusef Nurkic. That's a, that's a solid five that I think they feel very confident in all those guys. You've obviously got Gordon as a six-man, and he plays a lot of minutes. Prior to the Bill injury, one of the things we kept talking about was, okay, a Kogi or Kata Bates-Diop. Are these guys like, do they have a bad game and it matters? Now it almost doesn't matter. I mean, you want those guys in the playoffs. You're going to need them to buy a few minutes. But now you can survive a bad game from Josh Akogi or you know low minutes. It just it makes such a lesser impact than it was prior because they have a closing five and a five that ends up playing or a six man rotation that ends up playing most of your minutes. And I think that's a big deal. But I like this road trip. You're right at Dallas, at Indiana, at Orlando, at Miami. That's a four game run right there where they can walk out of that feeling really good about themselves. And oh by the way, if you look at the standings. They're right back in the thick of the things. Not quite the yeah. top four. There's a little separation, but they are right there in the thick of things for that five seed. Um, you know, with New Orleans and Dallas, who I think they're probably better than both of those teams. And we'll see if they can uh, kind of firmly plant themselves above that that frame. All right, let's take a break. On the other side, let's get to a collapse with the Brooklyn Nets. Once again, I feel like we've done this show three times now, a Brooklyn Nets late game collapse. <laughs> We're going to do it again here as the Clippers are also a story. Clippers on a roll. And they closed with a very interesting five-man lineup, too, I thought, last night. So we'll talk about all that and more. The NBA season is in full swing. And if you can't get enough of the action, then you need to hop on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Right now, new customers can bet $5 on any NBA game and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. You can even make that same deal if you want on the NFL. Always fun betting on the NFL right now. Legs, who do you have uh, in, in your championship games? Do you have a, a pick for those two matchups in the NFL? Yeah, I really like San Francisco, and I, I have a feeling now it's going to be Kansas City. I think I think I think Kansas City. I think Kansas City goes. This was the one they had to get escape against Buffalo, man, uh, and they found a way to do that. And look, I love Lamar Jackson, but I don't know Kansas City. They've been in a spot so many times. I can see them coming up big on the road. I got the same two teams. So I'm I'm with you, even though I think the Baltimore one is going to be very interesting. You can make a bet even on either of those two teams, and even if you're wrong, even if Legs led you astray, as he would never do, but if he does, <laughs> you still get your $200 in bonus bets instantly. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook now. Use promo code ALLNBA. New customers bet $5 and get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 878-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 or older age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. If you're looking to get... 
Tickets to the game. You know what app to use. We've been telling you since the show began, the Game Time app. They've got that great interface that allows you to see the final price, the all-in pricing right there on the front page so you're not surprised by fees. They've got deals on everything from concerts to events to any type of sporting event uh, in your city. You can get last-minute ticket deals. No plans on a weekday night. You probably can get $15, $20 tickets to a, a basketball game. Just hop on Game Time last minute, see what they have going, and uh, get the deal. So download the Game Time app now, create an account, use code ALLNBA. You get $20 off your first purchase. T terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem code ALLNBA for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest prices guaranteed. All right, back here, segment two of the All-NBA Show. We appreciate you guys making this show grow. Don't forget to hit the like button if you're enjoying the content and subscribe on our YouTube channel. Subscribe on your podcast app, so if you ever miss a show, you can listen to it in the car on the way to work. Let's get to Clippers and Nets last night. This game is only noteworthy, Legs, because the Nets completely blew it. They go up 114 to 103 with five minutes and 33 seconds left, and you're feeling good. Mikkel Bridges, they get a steal. They get a, a fast break. And he puts the ball in. The Clippers come back out. They go to their big three plus Westbrook and Powell, and it was a tsunami to end that game. You go from a blowout loss to a blowout win in five minutes, and it really was less than that because there was time to dribble the ball out at the end of this game. What happened that Brooklyn collapsed? Or should I say what happened that the Clippers rallied? Well, I guess Brooklyn went into their three favorite play calls in, in the fourth <laughs> quarter of this game. They're, and I think I think in their playbook, if you were able to get yeah. a copy of that playbook, their three favorite play calls are train wreck, hot mess, and dumpster fire. Those are the yeah. three plays they go to most yeah. often. And they went to all of them repeatedly. No, I'm serious. You can't make up the stuff that they did in the fourth quarter. Uh, so give the Clippers credit. You'd always have to. The team that wins and makes the comeback. But my goodness, did Brooklyn contribute to this every bit as much as anything that the Clippers did. Think about this. They had two, two out-of-bounds plays that led directly to fast-break dunks going the other way. So they couldn't even inbound the ball. One on the half court, one on the baseline. Both led to dunks going the opposite direction. They had Nick Claxton, who was being guarded by Russell Westbrook, by the way, yeah. basically camped out at the three-point line in the right corner, three. yeah. which meant that Russell Westbrook was standing on the yeah. block waiting to provide traffic on whether it was Cam Thomas or Dinwiddie or the rare times that Mikhail Bridges touched the ball in, in this stretch of this game. He's basically just loading up in the paint waiting because he's guarding Claxton in the corner. And by the way, they threw it to Claxton one time and he took a three-point shot from out there. You yeah. had Lonnie Walker – run right through James Harden on a three-point shot, like literally yeah. steamrolls him, closing out on a three-point shot to give him three free throws. So you you can't make up the number of things that Brooklyn did wrong, and that's not even including just what their their possessions looked like that actually where they got a shot off. It, there was just no identity to it whatsoever. And again, I, I always keep saying the same thing. I love Mikael Bridges, but – the guy took two shots in the last eight minutes of the game. The one you're talking about, the breakaway that forced the timeout by the Clippers to go up 11. And the Clippers, they don't, and that, that, by the way, was the last points Brooklyn scored, five and a half minutes to go in the game. He had one other shot in this game inside of a minute to go. And he's supposed to be your best player, your all star caliber player. And instead, it was like, you know, Cam Thomas doing a whole lot. And Spencer exactly. Dinwiddie was trying to do some stuff. This. They just didn't have any quality possessions, and the Clippers turned up the heat on them. Look, maybe the reason Bridges doesn't get the ball much is because Kawhi was guarding him, and they sure. just went in a different direction. But, I mean, you can't be that caliber of a player that because you're being guarded by someone like that, that you're not aggressively trying to continue to attack, and, you know, you're the leader of your team offensively. So the Clippers basically, for the first 42 minutes of the game, they didn't really have much of a reason to look like they were, they were, they should win this game, but then they come out of that timeout and they're like, well, if you're going to give it to us, we're going to take it. And then, you know, Kawhi was sensational down the yep. stretch. Norman Powell was big. Westbrook, you know, had a hand in that. Paul George actually hit the first one, a, a, yep. a pin down three after yep. that basket to go down 11. They come out, he hits a three right off, right like that. It's eight. And now you, and the crowd kind of starting to get into it. And then it was just the Clippers, just every in every way imaginable, just being more polished and mature and poised and just executing on both ends of the floor. And, and the Nets, 
had no, absolutely no answer for what they were trying to get accomplished. So it's one of those nights where a team just gets outplayed thoroughly, but realizes that this other team does not know how to close the game. So you go yeah. take it. That's what the Clippers did. There were also fast breaks that happened. So some of the th things you can't do, when you have five and a half minutes to go and you're up 11, you can't run the clock out, but you can be patient to kind of make sure you don't give away anything easy. The Nets had yeah. a couple quick shots that then led to quick fast breaks because it was a bad shot and then no uh, floor balance getting back. And I think they had, I don't know, four or six points on fast breaks just in that stretch there where you're thinking you got to be dialed in and not give them the easy stuff. So there was that. And then as I'm looking at, and I got to also say, I thought James Harden played really good defense. I mean, we never talk about James Harden's defense. His defense in that five-minute stretch was actually very impressive. He had a couple of really big stops, some on Cam Thomas. Um, so, you know, not not a shout-out you give too often, but I thought he was notably good on defense in this game, especially they. this was a game where they were allowed to. I mean, Brooklyn's not big. The Clippers were allowed to play their small ball lineup that featured their four superstars plus Powell and – they're so comfortable playing that. If you can't take that away from them, I kind of like them in that matchup. And that's why, Legs, when I think about Clippers and Suns, the Suns and the Clippers have similar strengths and they have similar players. But when you talk about how notable it was that Grayson Allen was able to make a, you know, attack a scramble defense and get a layup, it was noteworthy because it was impressive of a role player. But the Clippers have guys like, you're not surprised Westbrook can do that. You're not surprised Norman Powell can do that. So I almost look at those two teams, and, I, and they're both playing very hot right now. I think they're very similar, but I think the Clippers are a little bit better at the same strength. Yeah, and that's why they would be, you know, if I could just pick any pairing in the first round in the Western Conference playoffs, I'd want to see Clippers and Suns. Same. I, I want to see that. I want to see seven games of that. I really do. Yep. Uh, for what you, for the reason you just said, both of those teams have lethal small ball lineups. Um, yeah. That would make it really fun and interesting. I, I, I want to back up what you said about Harden too, by the way, and why he was effective defensively in this game. And that, you know, there are nights when he's not. He kind of swipes at the ball. He gets beat off penetration. He is not going to guard the lightning quick guard. Right. Uh, be, be able to defend the lightning quick guard that changes directions with the basketball and then has that burst of acceleration. He just can't do that. But he can use his physical strength against guys that aren't necessarily blow-by type players. And I think that's what he was getting with Dinwiddie when he was guarding him, when he was guarding Cam Thomas. Those guys, are that's not what they play. It's more They're more like herky-jerky start-stop, but they're not, they don't have that extra gear of acceleration to go by you. And, and, and you know, particularly Cam Thomas, he's going to get to a lot of step-backs. Harden can use his strength to cut him off and shoulder him up and then kind of almost work to his advantage to get those guys off balance a little bit because they run into a brick wall. So, but, but I give him credit because he did exert the effort, but he also had favorable guys to guard for him and he could still do that. He's strong enough that he can provide an obstacle for guys that aren't going to just be jets and get by him with the crossover dribble and then explode downhill. Cause he's going to struggle with that. That wasn't what was happening here. So his defense was, was pretty effective. I love their small lineup. I love Phoenix's small lineup. Um, that would be, to me, a dream series if those two teams somehow, some way can end up paired up. We got a super chat here that's pertinent to the conversation from Psycho Blue SF times T. No idea what that means. But we appreciate the super chat. $10 says, Suns just need one more rotation guy who can get buckets off the bench and has size length. Sadiq Bay question mark. He also says the Nets meltdown was depressing. They're asking too much of Mikel too quickly. Let's start with this first part, Legs. I don't know if I agree with the premise about needing a bucket getter. I just think the Suns offense is great. I think they need a reliable two-way player. So you you need to have somebody, but I definitely think they are one. We just talked about, they have six guys you trust. I think you need seven. So I do agree that they need one more player, but I don't know if it's a bucket getter. What do you think? Well, I, I don't, I agree. I agree with you because here's the thing too. When you look at th those top three guys, right? When you have three guys that good, it means Vogel can always have two on the court at all times. You should never have less than two on the court, to be honest with you, unless there's a foul trouble that dictates you, you go in a different direction. So as a result, you know, though that also becomes your bench. So you got Beal Booker, Durant, one of those guys comes out of the game. When they come back in, it's almost like that is the guy you're talking about that's now coming off your bench with the second unit guys, but still an elite level, top flight, top tier offensive player that can get his own shot. So I don't necessarily think that they that they need that either. And I think, you know, they're more comfortable playing smaller 
there that it's the league is built to play lineups that are smaller if you have this kind of firepower because there aren't teams that really make you pay for doing that it's very rare now look you're going to run into some a few teams in this league that have bigger guys that it's a problem they could just dominate you for that entire stretch when you don't have a physical defender on the floor at all and you'll get you'll get destroyed on the glass but there's not a lot of that you don't see a whole lot of minutes like that so this this the way the league looks is catered to what the Suns have done, I think, with their roster. And I don't know that they need to add another guy like that. I think they've got enough. Yeah. I see it. The other note I see in the chat, someone says the Suns need Wendell Carter Jr. from Orlando. I'm a huge Wendell Carter fan. And I actually think that adding him would make them significantly more challenging for the Denver Nuggets. Maybe even so much so that I would give them favorite status or at least, you know, right there with Denver, make things hard because you need a second big. But what's weird is you only really need it for that matchup and nothing else. So I, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what the Suns do at this trade deadline to see which of the you know weaknesses or, or shortcomings that they address. Because I do feel like as great as they are, are they prepared for all of the different matchups? I don't know if any team is, but they definitely are a team that I think are short on multiple different types of matchups. Let's go to the other game of the weekend, though. Nuggets-Celtics. This was probably the top game of the weekend, by the way. And I thought the Thunder in Minnesota had a very interesting game. Thunder pick up a big win on the road. But let's go to Nuggets uh, Celtics. Celtics 20-0 at home coming into this one. And the Nuggets picked up a win. Their clutch time defense reminded me a lot of last year. Legs, one of the reasons I believed in the Nuggets to win the title last year, their numbers overall on defense weren't good. But in close games, even against great teams and great offenses, their defense clearly locked in played at an elevated level and it looked to me like a championship caliber defense in those samples that was last uh friday night the that game was another example of that where you go is ever a great defense statistically not really around 10th but in those moments against good teams they just seem to be able to lock up and that's what was so impressive about that game and um i, I kind of mentioned it earlier but i'll expand on it now that that is the way i want to see games officiated of this caliber because I I just thought I just thought there was so much contact allowed in the post and even with guys getting handsy on the perimeter a little bit before guys were coming off ball screens you don't see that a lot in this league anymore and that's why you know you see a lot of marching to the foul line most nights you know you have an incredible number of elite offensive players in this game and yet 27 free throws total 13 and 14 for the two teams I absolutely love that, and I think it it definitely benefits Denver when they can get a game whistled like that because they they do have some guys that want to use physical strength defensively more so than lateral quickness, and so it kind of did help them in that vein. Here was a couple of my big takes from this. Number one, I kept waiting to see how much Boston was going to be comfortable playing Jokic single coverage, and they were kind of half stunting not really committing and you know that the theory is some teams are going to employ this let him be a scorer make him be a scorer and we are going to try to take away his passing as something that's picking you apart but he has the best of both worlds that's great okay some people are going to try to employ that the problem is he is so good at making sure he gets the shot he wants he does not ever get a shot off in one-on-one coverage in a post that he does not want rarely off balance rarely leaning backwards he he takes the appropriate amount of dribbles times up when he wants to spin or which hand he wants to go to you, you know you got a guy like Porzingis who's 7-3 and he's at a complete mismatch guarding somebody in the post because Porzingis is really good as a weak side defender coming over and bothering guys at the rim but when you put someone into his chest that can back him down that's that crafty and creative that's also you know a seven footer with that kind of touch now Porzingis was really kind of just basically inept in that matchup. He didn't he didn't have anything he could do. Horford's too small, but they kept sticking with that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Jamal Murray was in a different place in terms of his aggressiveness in this yep. game. And yep. he's incredible when he goes on these roles where he gets cooking like that and he can't, he comes up to court, you can just see it in his eyes. He can't wait to go at somebody and try to create something for himself. And when I watched Jamal Murray, and he doesn't have to do it every night, but he had to in this game. And yes. when he did, his ability to turn it up to that level, even against a team this good defensively, was really special. I mean, he was incredible in this game. It was really two guys, really, 
I think, did I read somewhere that they accounted for 89 of their points scoring or assisting out of 102? Two players, 89 points either assisted or scored. And these two guys basically controlled the entire game for Denver. And and then Boston, you know, they, you know, their top two guys didn't have a very efficient night shooting the basketball. And, you know, this game came down to late game decision making and, and at the final play, like Jason Tatum rushed it. He had, he had a good matchup. They got it to him directly out of the sideline in the post area, mid post. And he had he released that ball with three seconds left took one or two dribbles, and then shot a fadeaway falling to the ground over Reggie Jackson. He could have easily spun back toward the baseline, planted, got square, and gone up and shot an under-control 15-foot jumper with like a second left, and he just rushed it. He tried to get something out of his hand quick. I don't know if he was trying to draw a foul or what it was, but you know, not great execution on his part there late in the game, and Denver was able to hold on. This game to me – and I, maybe I'm reading in too much into this. I'm really curious to see if, uh, to what extent you agree or disagree with this. But this game to me highlights the difference between Jamal Murray and Jokic as a duo and most of the other duos, but certainly whatever duo you want to talk about on the Celtics. Because all of Denver's offense comes from the two-man game. You can get Aaron Gordon buckets. You can get Michael Porter buckets. You can get KCP buckets. But it starts with the two-man game, and there's just an infinite amount of possibilities and teams. There, there's enough in that two-man game to adjust to whatever the defense is doing without going away from the two-man game. And I think with Boston, they run plays for Porzingis. They'll run plays for Drew Holiday. They'll run plays for Jalen Brown. They'll run plays for Tatum. But it's not necessarily a natural, if we run this action, anyone can score from it. And I think late in games, you got a lot of, they're going to Tatum. Well, if Tatum either makes or misses, but if you know, defense over rotates or does this or that, what comes off of it, it's almost just regular kick the ball out and hope somebody attacks a scramble defense or this or that, but it's not necessarily flows one action to the other. And I think when you talk about playoff basketball, the Celtics have so much in their offense that is pretty, but is there can you get to unlocking all of it in, in a flow? And I just thought that's one of the things I noticed. Denver deserves credit defensively, but Boston's flow in the fourth quarter to me was – it, it just wasn't there. I love this analysis because I think they're 13 and eight in, in close games, what you consider crunch time games. Um, and they're obviously their overall record is better than that. So, you know, you get, you get them into, you know, late game situations, you, you stand a chance because I still think that's going to be the question mark for them. What you're saying basically is their two best players operate independently of each other. And Denver's two best players are constantly, connected in a way that forces a totally different level of defensive attention because yep. it's the two best players and they're constantly involved with each other at the same time. So the amount of, of help that you need to provide to deal with that. And then also, by the way, it's one thing with the, what those two guys are creating for each other. Now that's when you get weak side heads turning and boom, there's Aaron Gordon slipping on the baseline. Now he didn't do that in this game. He didn't have a field goal in this game. But in a lot of nights, that's the case. Or that's when you'll get a weak side slash from a Christian Brown or Peyton Watson. Or you'll get a like a cross-court three to, to Porter because they, they you know, the defense shifted to such an extent because of this two-man game and the problems it creates and how good Murray is at reading Jokic. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. He had a three in the second half of this game where he came up the floor, he threw it to Jokic at the elbow like he typically does. And then he sort of hard sprinted toward the wing on the same side. And Jalen Brown was guarding him. And I think Jalen Brown was anticipating, all right, he's going to run to the wing. And then Jokic is going to throw it to him on the wing and then come over and run two-man game. They do it all the time. Well, Jamal Murray, I think, saw Jalen Brown sort of turn his head the wrong direction. And he just stopped and then came back up toward the top of the key to take a little flip pass from Jokic for a three at the top of the key. And Jalen Brown was like 10 feet away. He's basically on the wing waiting for him. He fell down trying to get back over to him. And I just, I watched that play and I said, man, what a beautiful read by Jamal Murray. And it's like Jokic isn't, wasn't surprised by it or phased by it. Right. Because the continuity chemistry that they have in playing together is so difficult to stop. And it was really never more on display than you're going to see it on this game on Friday night against the best team in the NBA. And now, look, a lot of that might have got masked, Adam, if they weren't so good defensively in this game. But Denver was so good defensively in this game that you see the complete picture. And now you're seeing, okay, wow, this could be a finals preview. And wow, would, would that be incredibly entertaining? And oh, by the way, 
no one would be shocked if, if Denver was a, was to repeat because right. of how well those two guys played in this game. You're going, that is so difficult for anybody to stop, even a team like Boston. And this last take might feel a little incendiary legs. So I'm curious again, what, how much you push back, but so much of basketball is the X's and O's of it. It's your ability to, you know, can you put guys in a pickle and this way you got right guys in the right spots and everything else. But there's another part of it that is about just toughness and mental and physical toughness. And I thought Denver in this game, and I thought it coming in and then we saw it in the game, has a huge leg up on teams like Boston in that category. And it can be easily overstated, and I don't want to do that. But it also could be something you don't think about. You just look at it on paper, and you look at the X's and O's, and you look at the matchups. But there's something, too. I just think Denver is a very mentally and especially physically tough team. And I think that Boston is probably not those two things. I mean, you saw Porzingis get Jamal Murray or Reggie Jackson switched onto him multiple times, shoot fallaways. You saw guys miss free throws in the clutch. And so I just that's one thing that I noticed watching that game that to me is a big deal. And I'm curious if you think it is as well. I do, and I think the difference is is what and what really helps Denver having already broken through. Yeah. All right. It's amazing the freedom that that gives you mentally, because and, and look, you know, not everybody is has, has the same sort of sensitivities to to critique and criticism, whether it's media, press, fan base, whatever it may be. But when you're Boston and you've been to the threshold this many times in the Jason Tatum era, right? And they've been to a final, they've been to a number of conference finals. They've had some late game situations that they have not performed well. That's always hanging in the air in a close game against a good team, whether it's regular season or the first yeah. round or what second round or conference finals or finals, that is just always there. It's in the air. And Denver, that is not. They've cleared that. They've already done it. And I think that's that little extra level of freedom from the, you know, the anxiety of those moments and like having to get through it and like pushing yourself to get through it and how that can sort of take away muscle memory sometimes where you're overthinking. Denver doesn't have that anymore, man. They're, they're in such a comfortable free place. And so, yeah, you expect them. And look, let's face it, part of it is also because you've got this incredible player that you can give the ball yeah. to at any time and he's going to make – the absolute right decision almost every single time with that level of skill. Yeah, that helps a lot, but it's their whole team, their whole belief system, top to bottom for everybody. And that requires in a big moment, KCP or Michael Porter Jr. to have to make a big shot or, or Aaron Gordon to come up with a big game in that moment. They're so free now mentally because they've already done it together collectively. That's something that Boston still carries with them night in, night out in close games, particularly against good teams, because that's who they're going to be judged against. Ryan Rosillo had a really interesting take about the Nuggets after they won the title last year. And that is, there is a pressure to when you lose in the playoffs on the, on the build. Like there's an expectation, okay, we have time. But at certain point, though, we have time flips to, are we ever going to get this done? And Boston has been largely healthy for their playoff runs. Denver... Yeah. You could make the argument that they also should have been feeling that pressure going into last year, but they didn't have Murray for the previous two seasons. And I almost feel like there was a weird hidden benefit where Denver didn't necessarily have the pressure to win a title in 21 and 22 because they were missing their second best player. So they got playoff experience without necessarily the pressure of, hey, we didn't get this done. And then, of course, when Murray comes back, they do win. But I do wonder, and I know this is Ryan Rosillo's point, but I think it's a fair one. If Denver had Murray in 21 and 22 but didn't break free, would, would there have been more pressure on them in 23 going into that playoffs? It's an interesting question, and now we're seeing Boston kind of in that spot where I don't think that they are late, but it is time. Like, they are now are on – it is their time to win, and so I think there's a pressure they're going to feel in those moments, especially come playoffs. All right, let's get to our last segment here, which is as we look at the standings, there's some interesting teams at the top. If we go to the Western Conference and start over the weekend, Oklahoma City picked up a big-time win against Minnesota, and those two teams are, of course, neck and neck in the standings for the number one seed. If we just start with those two teams, is there one? Now, Oklahoma City just won in Minnesota, but is there one team that you think of those two that especially needs to have home court going into the playoffs if they want to make a run to the finals? I, I would actually say Minnesota needs it more than Oklahoma City, and I think it has to do with – 
I, I think I trust Oklahoma City more in close games. Um, and I think, that, yeah, I, I, more so than Minnesota. And I think Minnesota is one of those teams that, you know, look, I think that you could you would start to see guys pressing a little bit. I think Anthony Edwards might actually put too much pressure on himself mm. to be sensational rather than let there still be a flow to it. Even if you know that ultimately you know, you're the guy and you're going to be judged, I think sometimes still he wants it so badly. And this is in a good way. He's so hyper-competitive and wants it so badly that sometimes it's it's hard to be able to function in those moments because of, of you know, your, your, your intensity level offensively sometimes works against you. And I think that is how I would sort of view that team in those moments where, like, if you, if you if, for instance, if you have home court in Minnesota you, and you lose that first game, I think, man, the weight of the world is now on you in that yeah. game too, right? So – I, and I think starting out on the road, you know, you go zero and two if you're Minnesota. I think they're really going to feel that having to win those two games at home for some reason. Oklahoma City gives me more of a calm, cool, and collected vibe. I, maybe it's because of the way Shea Gilgis Alexander operates, or the you know mature beyond his years, a guy like Chad Holmgren, Jalen Williams. Like these guys are so mature and poised the way that they play. They're so under control. I just feel like I trust them a little bit more going into a hostile environment on the road and getting that one win that you have to have. So I think Minnesota mentally would probably need that a little bit more than Oklahoma City. I like all those points. And you're right about Shea, man. I think the Thunder take their cue from him emotionally and that he is so even-keeled. He almost it looks like his heart rate never skips up. His <laughs> speed of play, like Jokic, is never – he can be quick, but he's never sped up. And I think the whole team kind of just plays with that energy – you know, taking their cue from him. He almost he almost plays like Prince in that Chappelle show skit. <laughs> you remember that game blouses are just casually dominating and never seems to be too high. I like that. I'm the first one to ever compare Shay to, to Prince, I think. Um, but yeah, the, so there's that. And then I think the part we just talked about with Boston, which is Minnesota is more at a crossroads just in their overall arc than Oklahoma City is. And I just think Oklahoma City is going to likely approach this playoffs with without any pressure really i mean it's everything is sort of gravy for them they don't want to lose in the first round or anything like that but i think if they got to the second or even third round there's probably this what do we have to lose feeling that minnesota won't feel so i agree with you that i think it is more important to oklahoma city if we open it up to denver now and then even the clippers both of those teams right behind them i mean it's within striking distance of the one seed in fact denver's only one game back do either of those two teams, do you think, need home court advantage? Or how big of a factor do you think it'll be for those two? Not nearly as big, uh, but just because of the number of moments that all of those guys collectively have seen and been in in their careers. Obviously, Denver won it a year ago, so we just talked about it, the pressure kind of being off them a little bit. But I just think what what they have collectively gone through, the number of tight spots that they've been in and the way that they've come through and delivered and the belief they have in the core continuity of their starting lineup, uh, I just and their and the connection to their head coach in those moments. I mean, they've answered the bell in big spots. They're not going to be phased by that, you know. And again, when we talk about you know being on the road in, in a playoff series, what you're really talking about is winning one road game. You know, win one, yeah. hold home court, you win the series. I mean, that's the way it works. You only have to win one. You don't have to repeatedly win on the other guy's floor. Just one game. So Denver clearly going into any series. On the road to start off, very confident that they would get a split in those first two or that they would believe they would get a split in those first two. And the same to Clippers. I mean, look at those guys collectively, the number of moments. that the, Now, Harden, that's, you know, he's had some issues under pressure. You know, but again, he, he's not feeling as much on this team. But Paul, George, Kawhi Leonard, Westbrook, I mean, you know, and Harden, add those four guys up. The number of things they've seen in their careers in the postseason on the road – uh, and and most importantly, they have Kawhi Leonard, and Kawhi Leonard is going to deliver in a big spot when you have to have it. He's proven that he's going to do that and do it efficiently. That gives them incredible amount of confidence that they can win a road game. So I don't think it's nearly as important for veteran teams like that that have guys on it that have won a lot in their careers. Um, now all those guys in 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 uh, the Clippers, with the exception of Kawhi. They're still trying to find one, but they do have Kawhi Leonard to sort right. of 
steady the boat, man, in rough seas. Like he's the guy that's going to make everybody calm because, again, like Shea, never changes anything. His heart rate doesn't change. The way he plays doesn't change, and he comes through some big moments. That permeates the entire roster. If you go to the other side, Boston has a nice lead on the one seed right now, three and a half games up from Milwaukee. But, you know, anything can happen. The only reason I think this one matters for Boston is they are 20-1 at home. And if you lose home court advantage, you probably lost more home games and lost an early season momentum. So I think they're going to be the one seed. But I also think that there is something to that 20-1 and one record. Yes, they just lost to Denver, so it's weird timing to say it. But I think there is a security in knowing, like, at home, we don't lose. We, we're as good at home as anybody is, and we're going to have that crowd behind us. So I kind of think for them it is important, in part because they have such a big lead that if they blew it from here, something bad happened. That's a good point. I also think, and I don't, I don't think it's, you know, super, super daunting the environment necessarily at all for all these teams at home. But for some, it's a massive advantage, and you can tell by the way they play in that environment, and I think that is the case for Boston yeah. at home. It is just an electrifying environment. For them, I'd say the same thing about the Knicks. You know, for the Knicks to be able to have home court, it's just different in the garden when it's rocking like that. Um, and now you've got a guy in Brunson who's super comfortable in those spots. He's not going to be phased or sped up. Boston, I think, needs that energy and that environment, man, because like you said – it, you know, think about it. They, they might lose two or three home games all year. They're on pace to, to lose two, maybe maybe lose three or four. Still, by the time the playoffs get here and they're the number one seed and they've been almost unbeatable in that building, you know, the feeling that that gives you running out of that locker room into layup lines to start a game, it's just something that matters. It matters to them mentally. So uh, I, I think Boston for Boston it is important. Well, I think if you look at Boston, Milwaukee, and the 76ers, a huge swing in any of theories against any of those guys is how well do players like Drew Holiday and maybe Hauser and Malik Beasley and Tobias Harris Maxie. and Kelly Oubre, how, much, how yeah. well do those guys shoot the ball? And, of course, yeah. we know shooting the ball at home is just easier than shooting ball on the road for that caliber of player. So that's why I think home court is actually important for all three of these teams. And the Celtics have the, a huge leg up at this moment. But the Bucks and 76ers are tied, or a half, I should say 76ers a half game back. How big of a difference do you think it makes for those two teams, for the reason I just said? Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you one thing, though. As a shooter, I can, I can speak to this. And I'll use a guy like Tobias Harris as an example since you brought him up. You're right. Typically, most nights, you know, you should be super comfortable with your home environment as a shooter, right? It should just feel better. Every spot on the court, like you just do it more often. It feels comfortable the lighting, everything. But if you're a guy that has had some struggles in the postseason with your shooting and you now start out a series or you're playing at home in the playoffs in a particular environment like Philadelphia and you're Tobias Harris and you start off and, you, you know, you struggle and the game is tight and, you're, and you've gone, you know, one for seven to that point, right? You, then you'd much rather be on the road right now to figure your way through whatever it is that you're feeling. So the weight for guys that have had some issues in the postseason at home is actually more significant and I think can make it more difficult at times. Now, look, if they get hot, there's no place you'd rather be than at home. But if you don't, you start off slow in a series, the scrutiny you're going to get from the fan base, the media, and everything else in certain environments actually makes it better to go on the road for certain guys and try to snap out of it and have a big game to get back on track, to let people know, like, yeah, I'm part of this series too. That's spoken like a guy who shot 58% from three one year. Like, oh, I <laughs> love going on the road. Yeah, no problem. And not everybody shoots 60% from three legs. Um, <laughs> that does it for today, guys. Lots of NBA covered from a weekend. Everybody, I think, had their attention on football and for good reason. It was a great football weekend, some really good games, but some NBA games snuck under the radar. I'm glad we got to hit a, a handful of them. Some good stuff tonight. What do we got on the docket tonight, Legs? Let's take a quick look at the slate. Are you, uh, let's see, we've got Cavs Magic should be an interesting one. Yep. We have got um, Celtics Mavericks. That's a great game. Celtics have to bounce back on the road. And then Bulls Sun should be a good one as well. So we got a couple good ones to, to look at here as we get into Tuesday. Any last thoughts? And you get to see uh, Wembenyama and Embiid, right? That, that should be fun. 
<laughs> I think Embiid will, will like that matchup. I think that will favor him. <laughs> Everybody, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Thanks for the super chats. I know we got another super chat in there with no message, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Sidewalk Publishing. We'll just give it a shout out since we got the super chat. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Hit that like button for us on the way out. We'll see you tomorrow. Got it. We all silly like the mayor. 